All right, our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. Brandy Gunn is coming uh, to read that. Let me invite you to stand out of uh, honor of God's word for our scripture reading this morning. Listen as I read. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I'm Lou Damiani. I'm a fellow sojourner here with all of you at Sojourn. Uh, I hope you enjoyed a meaningful time with family and friends over this Thanksgiving time. Um, we did. We, um, we had a reunion, first time in three years after COVID was over with most of our grandchildren were there. We have 16 grandkids, and they honored us and with our kids with, for our 50th anniversary, wedding anniversary, which kind of was a little bit later than they wanted to do it, but it was so super. The unfortunate thing is, especially with my grandkids, is nine out of the 16 of them are Ohio State fans. <laughs> and despite my best efforts in training my children, two of my daughters and both of my son-in-laws, two of those daughters are also Ohio State fans. They are no Michigan fans except Princess Patty and me. <laughs> and so for 10 years, I have been routinely mocked <laughs> on yesterday and today of the same time. So you cannot imagine how glad I am this morning to say, go blue. <laughs> On to more eternal things. At Sojourn, our central focus Sunday by Sunday is Jesus Christ and his gospel. And indeed, it is one of the craziest things. It is the craziest thing we have ever heard. And yet, it is absolutely true. There are so many amazing aspects of God's grace that are encompassed in the gospel. We will never in this life possibly plumb the depths of it. But what lies at its core? When you drill down into the gospel, this one simple central truth keeps bubbling up. And it is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the gospel and the word of God tells me so. God makes that so abundantly plain that a four-year-old, three-year-old can understand it. The love of God is at the very heart of the gospel that we believe and we receive personally, but likewise... Child of God is yet at the core of living out the gospel. 
exactly how did God so love us? I hope this does not become mundane to you or trite, that it's forever fresh. Romans 5.8 doesn't mince any words. And that's one of the reasons I just love this verse. God clearly demonstrated the level of his love for us in that while we are in the midst of our sin, Christ died for us. In other words, when we were at our very worst, he gave his very best. This is the level of sacrificial love that is at the core of the gospel. Christ willingly laying down his life to pay a sin debt that he did not owe. Because we owed this huge debt of sin, we could not pay. He paid it all for us. Completely. Full atonement. Full forgiveness. How can that be? Now through him, any and all, any and all who come to him by faith can be completely forgiven. People say, oh, that's just too easy. The cross wasn't easy. Anything but. It just requires a bowed knee and a willingness to say you need a savior in your life that you are making a mess of running it. Then to be placed in right standing before God for all, all eternity. Think about that. Forever. Right the moment you come, become a Christian, your eternal life starts at that moment. Right standing before God because God so loved. At the very core of the gospel is this inexplainable, unconditional love of God. But Christian, there is a flip side out of that love, there is a vital connection and corollary of God's love for us that is to be now our love for one another. The more we live in the reality of God's love, you're set free to love others who you don't like, who irritate you, who trouble you. Since God so loved us, appreciate to have 1 John 4.11 up here this morning. Since God so loved us, we are now to so love one another. It means in the same sacrificial, dying to self way that he died for us, that he demonstrated his love for us, becomes the motivation, the power, and the ability for us to be able to love those we'd rather not. So this begs the question, what is the difference between liking somebody and loving them? Well, I personally love this definition. You like somebody because, because they're so thoughtful and kind, because they look nice and most often smell nice, because he is willing to even watch Christmas Hallmark movies with me and make the popcorn. They're all becauses. But we love someone, although. 
Although they can be irritable and inconsiderate or space cadets when it comes to remembering an anniversary or a birthday, or when they are rejecting and cold, we love them regardless. Because Christ so loved us when we were at our worst, <laughs> he enables us to love others in the same capacity, in the same way. Such a powerful thing. Such a thing that sets a heart free. In our witness to the unbelieving world, they're all watching us. That is why Christ commanded us a new commandment, really actually a new commandment that is on top of my old one, that you love one another even in the same way as I have loved you, that you love one another. And by that, through that, the world around you that has a hard time believing the truth about me, they'll begin to catch it when they see how well you love one another. They see the level of your commitment to one another. By this will all men truly know that you are my disciple. Do I do this? <laughs> I do this so imper imperfectly. At best, I fail at it repeatedly, like yesterday. Right? And the reason, my number one reason, we all have ours, but I think the number one reason for most of us in this way is that we fear rejection. Because we've had it in our lives, we know the sting of it, and we wall ourselves up, and we wall ourselves off from it. We don't risk. But child of God, the gospel is out there. Meaning this. It is always taking the risk to open up our lives to others, always. In our flesh, we want to self-protect and just be around people who are safe. Yet the more we do, the more we're saying no to Christ because he lived out there and his spirit is working on us to break down walls for us to do the same. The more we say no to Christ, we're saying the no to the work of the Spirit he desires to do in us has been given to us to work through us. We quench the Spirit and we lose all the way around. So does the world we influence for Christ. It's losing the more we self-protect. Self-centered, self-protective living is a slow death. You don't even know you're dying. It's kind of like black mold behind the wall or something that's so insidious, but it slowly destroys you. That's why God is always just saying, I want you to live. I want you to know the abundant life. I don't want you to have something. I don't want you to have second best, third best, tenth best. I want you to know my best. So he's always moving by his spirit to let the walls down. When we live more like Christ, it's a promise. When we live more like Christ, guaranteed, you're going to be treated like he was treated. The more you live for him, the world, the world's going to treat you the way it treated him. And sadly, in our day, not just the world, but fellow Christians who want to live self-protective too, and you're telling them truth, you're sharing truth with them, they're going to treat you like the religious leaders treated Jesus. 
A main reason, I'm not saying this is the only one, but a main reason why so many believers are emotionally shut down with this crust of self-protection placed over their hearts is because of a historical reaction to hurt from rejection. They've been rejected, they've retreated, they walled themselves off. We are not called by God to close ourselves in because that is fear-driven living. It leads to bondage and not to blessing. So I say this to you as a fellow uh, sojourner and struggler in this area. It is not how deeply we have been rejected or callously abandoned or wrongfully wounded. It is what we're doing with those hurts when they've happened. There is hope for all of us as God's children. We have the one who was ultimately rejected on our behalf as our advocate who knows how to enter in to the very depth of the pain we are experiencing because of this. Isaiah 53, if you'll go there with me, if you'll scroll there with me or turn there with me in your Bibles. Isaiah, it's about 60% of the way into your Bible. Isaiah 53. If you've, it's right before the prophet Jeremiah. And right after, Song of Solomon. Isaiah 53 is one of these great prophecies about the life, suffering, and ultimate death of Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah wrote, literally, 700 years before the birth of Christ, specific prophecies about his life, his ministry, and his death, including this one, this great chapter, Isaiah 53. And look with me at verse... Oh, let's see where I am. Okay, I'm moving right along. Okay, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That word... Forsaken literally means rejected. It is a word, here's the picture. It is being left vacant by men. And the picture is his arms are wide open, outstretched toward his own people that he came to die and live for. The very people he so deeply loved and came to redeem. And their ultimate and overwhelming response was, we don't want you. We don't need you. In fact, we downright hate you. He came into his own, John 11, John 111, and his own received him not. I don't know if there's anything more hurtful than to be rejected by your own. And some of you know that pain by your own family, by a dad, by a mom, by a sibling, by an ex-spouse, and increasingly in our day, by your own kids. The very relationships that God has given us to welcome and accept us 
where we belong, where we bond, where we were meant to, we were left vacant, abandoned, discarded, like some old refrigerator being kicked to the curb, and the wound is deep. And it screams lies to you about you. You're unacceptable. You're a nothing. You see, you really don't matter. You're really not cared about. And it's soul crushing. Right here, in this moment, is where the love of the gospel gives absolute hope. The healing power of Christ's love was made for such moments and for such pain. He is the one and the only one who can personally so identify with you in that pain and comfort you in it strategically, righteously, in a way that's going to minister to you at the depth of your life. He is the only one who can go there at that level. But more importantly, he is the one and only one who can ultimately heal you of that wound. Isaiah 61. Just go a few pages over. This is the main chapter for today, the main section. Isaiah 61. This is another major, amazing prophecy concerning Jesus Christ of the totality of his ministry at his advent when the Messiah, the anointed one, would come to earth. And by the way, this is the very passage that was read and recorded in Luke 4, 18 and 19. It was read by Jesus himself significantly in the synagogue of his hometown at Nazareth. Because word about Jesus had spread throughout the region. He'd done about his miracles, his life, his teaching. And it had also stretched all the way to Nazareth, to his hometown. And folk were wondering, wait a minute. Isn't this the son of Joseph and Mary? You know, the carpenter guy? Same Jesus. I mean, we watched him grow up right before our eyes. What's the big deal? Well, let's, he goes into the synagogue, and that day the leaders handed him the book of Isaiah and said, read a passage. And he turned to this one, and he read it, but he only read this far. Let's start. Verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, notice, to bring good news to the afflicted, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, put down those who feel re very rejected and broken and hurt, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Right there he stopped. Closed the book. Sat down. And Luke records that the gaze of every eye was fixed on him. Then Jesus said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
translated, Isaiah, so you know, was talking about me. I am that Messiah. I represent the favorable year of the Lord, and it's here. You see, Jesus knew what they didn't, that there's actually would be two distinct and separate advents. In his first advent, please understand, he came to do the very things described in the first verse. Bring good news to the afflicted, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Please notice what this, this passage is specifically referring to. It is referring to spiritual freedom, yours, mine, personal, from all the brokenness and the horrific bondages that sin has brought into every single life. First and foremost, in his first advent, he came to provide a sacrificial atonement, the forgiveness for personal sin. As well, he will provide the power and the capacity to forgive those, us, who have wronged us, sinned against us. Because you know we can be born again by the Spirit of God and know God's forgiveness deep within our hearts. And yet, we go around with a root of bitterness. We go around with a reservoir of resentment toward people who have wronged us. And in our minds, we can recall over and over again how they have failed us and fail to forgive them. So to the point, Christ came the first time to die the ultimate death, the perfect Lamb of God sacrificial death, so that through him, through him, each person, including you, could have the opportunity to receive the full forgiveness of sin and be made right with God forever. He came to provide that way, that opportunity is the way, the truth, and the life that every man, woman, and child can come to the Father through him if they choose. At his first advent, advent he came as a suffering servant, ultimately to die. But at his second advent, he will come as the judge and king of kings to set up his kingdom where he and those who know him will rule on this earth with him. And that's what we look forward to. Look at the second part of verse 2, continuing on through verse 3. And actually, it goes to the rest of the chapter talking about his reign. But we'll just cover 2 and 3. Okay, the, so to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God, that's his judgment of the nations, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. As a second advent, he will come as the king of kings and do these things. Now understand, 
what the Jewish people recognized in that day and what they were anticipating was one advent. And what they were focused on was verses 2 and 3. Some savior, Messiah, who would come up to set up this physical kingdom and do it now, which means all of the people who have all these godless Gentile nations that we're under, we will no longer be under the oppression of their rule. In other words, what they were looking for is a physical deliverer. When they, with their Messiah, would rule the earth, yeah, baby, they were all about that. Set it up. That's why all his disciples, when are you going to set up your kingdom again? Uh, did we miss that? I mean, we've been here a while. Tell us more about the setup of your kingdom. Can we have the primo seats when that happens? See, his disciples were even in that mentality. That's why he came. And we may think, related to this, that even though the Old Testament prophets spoke of a suffering servant and ultimately that he would be pierced through for their transgressions and so forth, none of that was on their Messiah radar. Thus, they were expecting a Messiah who completely would change their outward circumstances and they would be able to rule with him, but not for a Messiah. They weren't looking for a Messiah that would require first that he rule in them and over them. Which is why John 1.11 said again, when he came into his own, his own rejected him. And we may think, what's wrong with these guys? How could they be so hard-hearted and spiritually blind? When Jesus' power was on display right before their eyes, it's because of what they were expecting. And I think, and we may think, I judge these guys, and historically I have, but I wonder how much are we any different? Like when we're under pressure, when our present life circumstances feel absolutely crushing to us for some reason, what do we tend to long for? What do we tend to pray for and hope for? Is it not, Lord, please deliver me from this heartache? This pain, this mess, the stress, whatever it is, I don't like it, God. Take it away so I can have my life back. So I can have the life I want or the life I expect, the life I was hoping for. But what is Jesus likewise saying to us? He was ultimately saying to them. Is it not the same invitation First, come to me and let me rule in you. Because first, I'm using this situation to deliver you from you. From your self-sufficient ways, your independent spirit, your unforgiving heart, from being so closed in and self-absorbed, from having to have control, and with all the awful stress that goes with that, I'm using this circumstance to help free you from you. Would you let me work in you through that? God is always out to the most wonderful things for our lives. 
And he does it through these kinds of circumstances, these kinds of situations, these kind of painful things. He wants us to know true love. He wants us to know his peace, his inner peace, so that we can experience a life, a far better life than we ever thought we could. But here's how God works. He's a gentleman. His spirit is a gentleman. He entreats, but he doesn't enforce. He conjoles, but he doesn't coerce. He's not going to override your will to enforce his will. He's never going to do that. He gave you a free will. That's why his salvation offer is open to anyone. But he, spirit works for you to make your own choice. That's why when he wants to rule in a life, he doesn't force his rule on you. He invites. He welcomes. He conjoles. He's not going to force you. It is totally our choice. Out of his great love, he wants us to experience a far greater love. And he's pleading with us, quit fighting me. Quit fighting for your way. The work of his spirit is always out there. The more we live by the Spirit and obedience to it, what happens is the more we live out there, God is doing a work in here. The more we live giving our lives away through the power of the Spirit, His Spirit changes us into the character of Christ. And I know what happens then is a lot of times we experience rejection again, and we'd rather not to do that. We'd rather not experience it. And we, the reality is he will take me through some of the same experiences he let Jesus go through, including rejection. And the way he works through that, and I know this is, this is a hard word. This is something that I have had to work through so many times. The more I do for Christ, the more I live truth in love, the more I speak truth in hard situations the world is going to treat me like they treated him. There are three reasons why we suffer. We suffer because we did something wrong. We're disobedient. We suffer because it's a common thing that happens to all of us. But the highest degree of suffering is when we suffer wrong for doing right. When we fellowship in his sufferings. And Christ has told us that when you fellowship for doing you do right and you suffer wrong for it, that's the highest level of reward and blessing in this life and future life. So how do we process rejection so that we don't live out of it but heal from it? Healing involves three things. First of all, God's sovereignty and his goodness. Ponder this. Since God has allowed us to experience specific rejections, would it not be in his plan to powerfully use them? Would he not plan to do something amazingly special through them, first in our life and then through our life? Because since he is a good God, he is up to something good in every painful circumstance and situation. Like some of you, um, my most painful and long-term rejection was from my father. 
Through my teens and college years, when I would be around the fathers of my friends and see their level of involvement with their sons and their interest in their sons, I would be so envious. But also, I didn't were aware of it at the time, but buried deep within me was this growing resentment toward God for giving me a dad like I had. Why would he do that? Why would you cheat me like that? That was the lie of the enemy. And the question the enemy was asking in my mind, and I was beginning to believe it. Why would God give me a dad who seemingly hardly cared about me except to yell at me? That didn't feel like love at all. Till I heard the hardest truth I have ever heard. At first it made me mad, but once I owned it, it made me glad. And once I owned this truth, the the result was a radical change in my life and in my perspective on life. Here's the truth. God knew what was necessary for my future success, which is why he gave me the exact parents that he did and the exact upbringing that he did and the exact experiences that he did. He allowed them. They weren't by chance. And that God was not out to cheat me, he was out to complete me. Game changer right there. What I owned, I implore you to own. God was not out to cheat me, but to complete me. In our every pain, that is Satan's number one lie, God is out to cheat you. Don't believe it. As I owned this, I began to thank God for my dad. This was hard. This was huge. That God knew what he was doing by giving me the dad that he did. I began to pray more for my dad. What difference that made in my spirit. The more I prayed for my dad, showed honor to my dad. I was kind of a distant, disdaining kid. Showed more proactive honor to my dad and prayed for him. And thank God for him. I felt the freedom. Understand my dad never changed. But through that hurtful relationship, God changed me. For the record, that was 52 years ago. Not coincidentally, working with men with father wounds and folk with parent wounds has been my most frequent and by God's grace most fruitful ministry over these many years. What does, that, what does that tell you? What does that tell me? That my God is the God of the resurrection who specializes in making beauty out of ashes just like we looked at verse 2 and 3 of bringing, making garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness and oil of gladness when there's mourning who takes your most painful life experiences to redeem them into your most fruitful and fulfilling ministries. Because God so loves, this is what he does, this is hard to hear, but this sequence is the biblical boomerang. He allows you to be hurt, to heal you of your hurts, to make you a healer. Let's say that again. He allows you to be hurt, 
to experience his healing to make you a healer. In a nutshell, that is the Lord's pathway to the abundant life he promised. That abundant life includes significant pain where you experience God in a deeper way. And then a life message is authored in your life and through your life and the lives of others. And the blessing is amazing. With, the, with rejection, you have two choices. You can either grow bitter with it or better with it. To grow better with it is to go to God with it, to have him heal it, and not to live out of it. This, in a nutshell, is your pathway to freedom as it was mine. Number two, you've, again, you're owning God's sovereignty. You own that truth that wasn't by accident. God's up to something good, but you own your pain. Don't stuff it. Don't hide it. Don't ignore it. If you bury the pain, you bury it alive, and it's going to eat you alive over time. Go to him, grieve it, lament it, cry about it, express it, get it out of you. He is the wonderful counselor and the great comforter. And as you experience him, you always say this way, at, you will not experience him until you go to him in that way, for, at that way in that way and for that reason. Some have found it helpful to write a letter to God or write a letter to the person who wounded them or both. Not to send it to them, <laughs> not to send it to those people, but just to say what you wish you could have said even if that person died years ago. Get it in writing. and It's not for them, it's for you. Perhaps on a personal retreat all alone where you can write a letter to a dad, a mom, an ex-spouse, or an abuser. And then write a letter to God related to that. The more the tears, the better. The more you're honest about the emotions, the better. And then thirdly is to own your part. Because you've been given the power, you've been forgiven the much you can forgive. God will grant you the ability to do that. It's a hard choice, but it's a releasing choice. After you've owned your pain, cried out of your pain, choose to release the one who hurt you because you're releasing yourself. You're releasing yourself from the bondage that bitterness gives you. Then afterward, as long as you live, be proactive to thank God that he did not cheat you but is at work to complete you. Because our Lord so loved... He experienced the ultimate rejection of being abandoned by its heavenly father during those torturous moments on the cross when our sins were being laid on his back while God turned his back. He was willing to experience the ultimate rejection so that we would never have to, so that the heavenly father would never turn his back on us because of our sin. This is why he came and how he loved and how he loves you. When you take the elements this morning, let it be in a fresh way with a heart of thanksgiving for how God has so loved you. Don't do it with a yawn. Do it with a tear. With a thankful heart, anew, for so great a sacrifice. Because he so loved you. He's freed you to love others and experience the life he died to provide you.
Serve as you will come as we pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We're celebrating this time again of your advent. Thank you for coming to lay down your life for us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including our own. And Lord Jesus, we, we pray. I pray for folk here, individual lives and hearts, with issues on their hearts today, that your spirit would take the word and bring encouragement to them and hope to them and wisdom to them. And we, we just give this time to you, Lord, praising you for all you are and for your soon coming, for your second advent. We look so forward to that as well. In your wonderful name we pray, amen.